Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Velas. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we have the privilege of getting to know Dr. Hans Madueme, the Associate Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. As you'll hear, Dr. Madueme was born in Sweden and grew up in Nigeria and Austria. Dr. Madueme, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm glad to join you guys. What a doozy of a topic to have someone email you and ask you to cover in a podcasting format. Well, when people ask me to talk about sin, I kind of wondering what you did my wife tell you I'm an expert on that? <laughs> <laughs> oh well you do have such an interesting background one of the things that I discovered before actually asking you to come on the show is that you're you were formerly a medical doctor and then that you had a lot of questions about biology and began exploring more theology and then it actually led you to getting your seminary degree your doctorate all these different things and now you are serving on staff at Covenant College, correct? That's correct. Yes. Such a fascinating background. Can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Yes. So I'm originally from Nigeria. I'm technically what people call a third culture person. So I've lived all over the world. I was born in Sweden. I grew up in Vienna, Austria, and went to school in England for a little bit and Montreal, Quebec. So I've been all over, sort of, I'm from everywhere and nowhere. But yeah, so I have a Nigerian background, and I actually came to faith when I was 19. And so it, it's always fun because I, I teach here at Covenant, and there are a lot of PCA students. And for many of them, they grew up in a Christian home, yeah, at which I think is wonderful. And my kids are going to have that same experience. But it wasn't mine growing up. So I, I, I came to, I became a Christian after my first year of college, and if you know any Asians and Africans, it's fairly typical, especially from the older generation, that the kind of vocation that parents want for their kids, it's a small number, right? Like, like medicine, law, engineering, maybe architecture, anything else you failed in life. So we're not <laughs> talking about art or music or whatever. So, and to be honest, like that mentality, some of that has to do with People who grew, grew up in poverty, mm-hmm. the best for your kid, and doing well at school, it, it, that sort of thing. And all that to say, I grew up thinking I, I wanted to be a doctor, you know, because that's what you do. I was in that pre-med track as an undergrad. I then became a Christian. 
And then when I got to medical school, that's when I started having a lot of theological questions and ended up reading theology to answer my questions. And, you know, lo and behold, I found myself falling in love with this thing and ended up thinking I wanted to go into the ministry while I was doing my residency in internal medicine. That had to be so tough because from what I understand, residency is no joke. And so when you don't have that extra motivation, I imagine that was such a challenge. That was a challenge. It was culturally a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for the godliest family. If your kid went through medical school and is now residency and then comes home and starts talking about going to seminary, that's that would be a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Uh, and it was for my parents. Uh, so it was pretty dramatic. It was one of those things where I knew that was what the Lord was calling me to do. And I, I actually knew after my first year of my residency, and it's a three-year program, mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be it was a bit of a shock, or a blow. So I thought, look, I'll finish the whole program, even though I know right after I'm going to seminary. That's why at Covenant College, we actually have a, a class that's called Christian Mind. And in that class, we just cover some basic areas of theology and the Reformed tradition. And one of the things we help them understand is calling and the different callings that God gives us and just to help them think about that as college students. And I keep telling them, man, I wish I'd gone to Covenant College because then I might have known when I was 19 what my calling was instead of taking a very circuitous route that involved four years of medical school and three years of residency. But the Lord is, was in control of that whole process. So Absolutely. You're making me wish I went to Covenant College. <laughs> Maybe we need to have you back on for a part two on calling. There you go. Definitely something I know many of our listeners are wrestling with. And in this particular conversation, this is nestled in an entire series on knowing and loving God. And I think when we're talking about knowing and loving God, it seems to me that starting with creation would be advantageous. Like this is a good place to start. I was just listening to Paige Brown. She's actually a teacher that many of us know. And she was saying, you know, if you don't have context for Jesus's coming, like when he came, if you don't have the whole story of the Old Testament, then you don't really understand the significance of it. And so I'm super grateful that you'd be willing to help give us a sky high overview of creation and rebellion. So how and why did God create us? By us, I assume you mean humanity or... Yes, yes. I don't know if you know, the, the how question is actually, I don't know if controversial is the right, is the right word, but it, th- there's much debate on that. Hmm. I take my cues on that particular question. How did that create us from Genesis 2-7, which reads, reading from the NIV here, hopefully that's okay. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being i'm quite traditional so my understanding is that our creation was direct the creation of humanity was direct was supernatural much like genesis 2 7 relates it it's actually part of stuff we'll probably talk about later why what's distinctive um, about us um, being made in god's image but there are others, other good people, some of my good friends, who would say that Genesis 2-7, that maybe interpreting it as a supernatural thing is more literal than it needs to be. And that perhaps Genesis 2-7 is, could it include a more sort of developmental process or things like that. I don't take that reading. So I, I think he created us pretty much like Genesis 2-7 tells us. 
And then uh, what was the second part of the question? Why, correct? One, I think he didn't do that because he needed us. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't like God was experiencing some lack. And in order to fill that lack, he created humanity. I mean, it's part of the beauty of Orthodox Christianity that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So within the Trinity, there are three persons in this eternal communion of Mm -hmm. love. And God is happy within himself, as it were. So he didn't need us, but it was just out of his grace, out of his generosity, out of mm. good pleasure that he made this whole universe and including us and um, to share, to share, to share um, his love uh, with us and for us to be able to glorify him. Anyway, th- those are some initial thoughts. You know, I love even as you mentioned that God existed in happy relationship with himself prior to our existence. And it just it made me laugh that even the question that I sent you is just so narcissistic in nature. We just want to know, like, how do we relate to God and how does how does all of this relate to us as opposed to thinking about him existing before all time? And so that just that brought a smile to my face, just even seeing (laughs) how self-centered I can be in the questions that I want to ask. But I do, you know, this kind of likens to the conversation that we began with on calling. We are all always wondering, why are we here? What is our calling? What is our purpose? So if God was happy in himself (laughs) prior to creating us, what purpose did he create us for? Yes, that's a great question. And it's one of those questions. There There are questions where we've got We've got tradition. We, there are people who've come before us that have answered that question pretty well. And it's hard for me to to do better than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You know, like, what, what is the chief end of man? What, what is our main purpose? The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, mm-hmm. it's succinct. That about says it, I think. That's why God has made us. So it is a very kind of, as you were saying, it's a very theocentric account rather than it revolves around God rather than us. I love that so much. And I feel like he just continues to reveal to me how much it is about him and how much more fulfilled I will be if I continue to orient my gaze to him, which is the purpose of this whole entire series. You know, one of the things that I have really enjoyed learning about, uh, especially in the last five years, is that we were made in the image of God. And that's not something I heard a lot, actually, when I was growing up, even though I did grow up in a Christian home. So what does it mean that man was made in the image of God? And is it just Christians who are made in God's image? Or does that apply to all people? Yeah. So so going back to front, um, definitely not just Christians, right? So that that's one of the, it's a genius doctrine. I mean, it, it's almost like Christianity's gift to the world, you might say, is this doctrine of the image of God or the imago dei, as, as some would say, um, it, it applies to all human beings and not just Christians. And just for your listeners, there are two verses that are really instrumental to our understanding of this doctrine in uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. And we're just going to read that, just get it on our minds. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, 
over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what's really interesting is that if you actually read that carefully, it doesn't actually tell us directly what the image is. It's sort of assumed um, within those verses. And as a result, over the millennia, Christians have had different ways of understanding what that image is. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention the three kind of main ways of thinking about it. Uh, one of them is just, one of them is like John Calvin had this view. Thomas Aquinas would have had something like this view. And this is like the image, there's something that we possess as human beings, like rationality or being able to reason, being creative. There's something special that reflects who God is. Oh, John Calvin just said that we have a soul. So sometimes there's an emphasis on reason, rationality. We have souls and no one, nothing, no other creature has that. And sometimes the emphasis is on it's what we are, that God, like every human being is de facto made in God's image. And that is something sacred. That is something special. So that's kind of one view. Another view is that if you look at the passage, it talks about right in the context of talking about the image, it says in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground, which we sometimes talked described as the cultural mandate or the d- dominion mandate. And so some have said that that actually our function, what God has called us to do, that that is describing God's image, that that is what the image of God is entailed in. And then the the last major view is kind of a relational view, that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now he has made us male and female. So there's something about our relationality that sort of captures what it is to be in God's image. So those are kind of like three dominant views that Christians have held. My own view is like, I don't feel like I have to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm, I'm happy to kind of say, hey, look, look, I think the substantive view is part of that full picture of what the is and the functional or the dominion mandate and the relational view. I just say the more the merrier. I, I think there's something helpful in each of those perspectives. But the final thing I want to say, though, is in the New Testament, then when we actually then see that Jesus, so for instance, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, Paul writes, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Christ. So there is a profound sense in which when we want to see God's image in its perfection, in its fullness, we look to Jesus. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, 
thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. Here we are made in the image of God, like created to enjoy him and delight in him. The world is, everything's going well. <laughs> right. It didn't seem to be going well for long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this, so this is, this is the doctrine of the fall. And this is uh, Genesis 3 is the scene of the crime. And I think most people are familiar with the picture. God uh, creates Adam and Eve. He places them in Eden. And it, it's lavish. All these trees are there for the for uh, for food. And he he says, you know, there's this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just leave that alone. Don't eat of that tree. So the tragedy in Genesis three is that, you know, then you have this ominous. You have this subtle creature, crafty serpent. Uh, who is that serpent? How did he get hit there? Why is he saying these blasphemous things? Why is he lying and distorting what God said? Deceives Eve, and Eve and Adam get co-opted, and they disobey. And it's that sin, it's that sin that sort of opens Pandora's box. I mean, it's it's catastrophic um, for us as human beings, for the descendants of Adam and Eve. And so the the three things that kind of three main things that happen that go wrong. One of them is that because of Adam's sin, we all come into this world kind of bent out of shape. Uh -huh. yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of ways you can say that. Like we're morally corrupt. We are broken. We're separated from God. We're dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. So we are sinners from birth. So that's pretty bad. And then the other thing and this one, I don't know if we want to spend too much time on this, but the way we have thought about this, the way at least Western Christians have thought about this is that we're not just morally corrupt or bent out of shape. We're also culpable. We're also guilty of that first sin. That's when people cry foul. Well, hang on. I wasn't alive at the time. And look, why am I guilty for what Adam did eons ago, et cetera? I mean, this is a doctrine that actually a lot of modern theologians now would say we should not. This is the doctrine of original guilt. We should just let go of that, kind of let it go and, and just stay with the um, moral corruption. But I think I think original guilt is actually really important. I think it's important for how we understand Romans 5, 12 to 21 and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. But it's also actually really important. Like it, It's not just dependent on those passages. It's also really important because I think original guilt that we are all somehow, each of us are somehow implicated in what Adam did, guilty, it really makes sense of the whole Bible. So it's not just this passage in Romans or 1 Corinthians 15. I think synthesizing a whole range of scriptures in the Old and New Testament. And the basic idea is that all human beings are sinners 
We need Jesus. And that includes infants. A 10-year-old infant or, you know, one-month-old infant, you're too young to commit any sins. But what the Bible doesn't say, okay, anyone who is not yet of age to be able to consciously sin is innocent. Because then if you're innocent, then you don't need Jesus. Then you're saying like anyone who is below that age of accountability, whatever you want to call that, doesn't need Jesus, but everyone else does. That's not what the Bible teaches. So I do think the idea that we're guilty from the beginning, as difficult as it is to get our mind mm-hmm. done, I think it makes a lot of sense. In the Old Testament, the father would make sacrifices for the whole family, including all the infants, babies, and so on. Original guilt makes the most sense of that. So there's corruption, that we're corrupt, that we're guilty. And then the other thing, the third piece is that when Adam sinned in Genesis 3.17, it says that God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. Like for the woman, there was pain in childbearing or increased pain in childbearing. But for the man, it was the ground was cursed. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What exactly does that mean? Well, Paul in Romans chapter 8 actually expounds on that. It's clear that he's thinking about Genesis 3 And what he says is that the creation is groaning, that the creation itself is groaning and waiting for the redemption that Christ is going to bring when everything is consummated. And why is creation groaning? And what does that mean? But I guess just to close this out, my view is that Adam's sin was kind of responsible for the fact that creation itself is groaning. And that's sometimes referred to as a cosmic fall. And I will just say parenthetically, that's a very controversial view these days, because if you think about the normal scientific way of understanding the history of the universe and planet, people have a real hard time believing that Adam's fall led to the groaning of creation, particularly if you think the creation has been groaning for a long time before human beings were on the scene as perhaps an evolutionist might say. Even at the very beginning, even after Adam and Eve disobeyed, as you said, that we still see like glimmers of redemption, even in the earliest accounts. So can you talk a little bit about where we even see the hope of a redeemer just almost immediately after the fall that you referenced? Yeah, so they're great. And that's what I tell my students, actually. Um, it's one of those sort of fancy words. It's the proto-euangelion. And it's, it's where we actually see the gospel there in Genesis 3, right? So early in the biblical story. And ironically, this is in the aftermath of the fall. And as God is sort of like, here's what's going to happen to each of you for for disobeying me, for doing this wicked thing, these divine curses, etc. So this is a real somber kind of, you kind of recognize, because we know the whole story, you recognize like, wow, this is Genesis 3. It's what happened here that sets up the problem that God's redemption that goes all the way to Revelation 21. So in that Genesis 3, we get in verse 15, when God, as he's cursing the serpent, you get this really interesting um, verse where it talks about, you know, I'm just going to read it. 
he says, cursed are you to the serpent. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So Christians, church fathers and Christians down the ages have seen that as the gospel, really, as a prophecy of the gospel, that a descendant of Eve would crush the head of the devil. And the devil would, would bruise his heel, and he would be crucified on the cross, the, this Messiah would ultimately be victorious. I just think that verse is, is so, it's so full of pathos or promise of the story that's going to unfold in the following chapters. Um, yeah, Genesis 3.15, as, as the gospel in the Old Testament, in, in the third chapter of the Bible, is really compelling. Well, how did Christ ultimately come to save us from our sin? It's really, and it's really good to kind of, you know, have the, the Old Testament background, uh, uh, the Old Testament is in mind as we even answer that question. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, as you know, if you were Jewish, if you were an Israelite, the big existential problem is that I'm a sinner and Yahweh is the holy God and I cannot be in Yahweh's presence. And so there was this elaborate sacrificial system, right? Like you, you're not going to get like some slab of meat from the local grocery store. You're going to get your innocent unblemished animal, your best animal, and you're going to take that to the priest. And basically that animal is going to die in your place. Your sin, your guilt is going to go on that animal and that animal's innocence is going to be yours. So there's this elaborate sacrificial system. But of course, then you read the book of Hebrews and you know, like, ah, you know what? They had to do that year after year after year. So it seems like that wasn't fully satisfying. Like that didn't really solve the problem ultimately. And then you get John the Baptist sees Jesus when he's about to begin his sort of formal ministry. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in answer to your question, so Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, right? Like he makes atonement for our sins. He atones for our sins the way that the Old Testament sacrifices were supposed to do, Jesus does that in the sort of consummate final way. So he's, he makes atonement for our sins. And another image you get in the Bible is he's our penal substitute. So Christ takes on the punishment that each of us deserves. He takes on that punishment as our substitute in our place. Those who place their trust in him, his righteousness is as it were, transferred or imputed to us. So you've got like Jesus as our sacrifice, Jesus as our penal substitution, and then some rich, some other rich kind of terms that we have in theology is kind of Jesus as our expiation and our propitiation. That as far as the East is from the West, because of what Christ has done for you and that you have received that, then your sins are washed away. Your sins are canceled out, past, present, and future. And the propitiation, Christ says our propitiation, adds this other layer in the sense that because of our sin, 
modern people don't get excited about this, but it it is there. It is part of the biblical witness that God's anger, God's wrath hangs over us because of our sin, um, because of our iniquity. God is angry, but Christ is our propitiation. It's this idea that he turns away the wrath of God. So if God is angry at us because of what Christ, because Christ has been a propitiation, the Father smiles at us rather than be angry at us. Christ's death as a propitiation is a beautiful doctrine, but one of the pushbacks is, hey, that sounds pagan. Didn't the pagans believe that the gods were like angry deities up there and then we had to sort of be propitious towards them so that their anger would be averted? And uh, that's a long discussion, but I would just say, one, the Bible's teaching on propitiation is much richer and deeper than that. Sometimes it's stereotyped, like the Father's angry and Christ is loving. Mm -hmm. And we need to sort of get closer to Christ and away from this angry Father. But actually, the Father's angry, but the Father sent his Son because he loved us. So what Christ has done for us and the atonement, it's a Trinitarian work. Not one person of the Trinity pitted against the yeah. other. And the other thing I was just going to say is, this is a complicated story that I'm not even going to try and hash out now, but I would say to the extent that pagan religions have some sort of sense of gods being angry and sacrifices being able to make propitiation towards the, those deities, I would suggest it's not that Christianity borrowed pagan ideas from these pagan religions, but yeah. I suggest that this is something fundamentally true about our God. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. What does it mean to atone for our sins? And that somehow, right, uh, there's an interesting theories on that, but somehow these pagan religions are perhaps ancient memories of this deeper truth that is revealed to us in Scripture. I don't know if that makes sense. It does, and it's such a comfort to think about, you know, every time I find myself wanting to appease God by my own behavior, which, yes, I do want to walk in obedience, but when I find myself trying to perform for his approval, continually going back to that, like, he is pleased with me based on the performance of his son alone. Nothing to be added to that. And so what a comfort the doctrine of propitiation is. It's like, this is something we can nestle ourselves in as believers and find great hope in. And I also find hope that he is redeeming us as his children. So how does he do that? How does he redeem us and help us? How does he recover or chip away at, or however you want to word it, his image in us, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. So just one quick uh, just clarification. So there have been Christians who have said that because of sin, because of the fall, God's the divine image was completely obliterated, was mm. completely lost. And then, you know, redemption is about recovering that image. The tricky part with that, the reason to sort of push on that a little bit is it's one thing to say the image was damaged versus the image was lost. Mm-hmm. One potential problem is that, oh, wow, so non-Christians are not in God's image. Right. Uh, and we may talk about this later, but there's the doctrine of God's image is actually a really important doctrine, but not just for Christians, but for non-Christians. Right. And it's, the implications are pretty 
concerning if we say, oh, there are a number of people who aren't in God's image at all. But yes, I think justification and sanctification, you know, that uh, when we are justified, our sins are forgiven, our guilt is placed on Christ and his righteousness, and we receive the righteousness of Christ, which is what you were just talking about. So that's a beautiful thing that we're justified And now we are united with Christ. We have been grafted into the vine and we're now, we are now connected. We're part of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then it's now this pilgrimage where we are now walking with Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are on this journey becoming by his grace in a very sort of topsy-turvy, up and down-ish kind of way we're becoming more like Christ. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And that's a work that the Holy Spirit does in us. He uses other people. It's within the community of the church with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And and so I, I guess using sanctification to kind of cover that, it's one, we're justified. And so there is a there is a sense in which Paul says about you and me, we are saints. We are holy. We're set apart. So we are holy now, but then there's another sense in which we are growing in holiness as well. Mm. You're making me think about a conversation that I had with Nana Dulce about growing in godliness. And she just said this and it stuck with me like this track that just keeps repeating in my brain, especially as I'm caring for our three young children and things are really tough. She says, if you're crawling, crawl. And I'm like, I'm crawling. I'm crawling, Lord. (laughs) But you know, I really, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about what you just referenced. What would it look like for us, the church, to live in light of these realities, specifically, not just in relation to one another, but how, if we have this, uh, an understanding of this doctrine, specifically the Imago Dei, what we talked about so much in this conversation, how does it change the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we move towards others, believers and non-believers alike. So if we're, yeah, if we're talking about the Imago Dei, the image of God, then one of the things it does for us is just reminds us that we are part of one big family. And I mean that in two senses. Like if we're talking about non-Christians, non-Christians are made in God's image we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. So we're part of the family. Now, I know when we speak of family, we normally mean the Christian family, but there is a sense in which there's a human family. And because we are in God's image, there's human dignity. There's, you know, even the secular language of human rights ultimately goes back to the doctrine of the image of God. So it's really funny that there are lots of non-Christians who care about the underprivileged, the marginalized, and human rights and all that. Amen to all that. But did you know that the reason that that actually goes back to this doctrine that you've set aside, but that that actually all of those concerns you have makes sense because of this doctrine. Mm. That's one of the ironies of being in a post-Christian society. But but of course, then, like even the topic of race and racism and what it looks like to worship on Sundays and uh, immigrants and uh, other people who don't look like us. There's a deeper sense. So one, we're all in God's image. But then, of course, you know, once we are Christians, we are now part of the body of Christ. That ratchets it up to a whole nother level where, you know, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so 
you know, on the this is actually a really difficult kind of issue because on the one hand, if someone's a Caucasian or someone's Asian or or black, that is a really important part of who you are. That, that your ethnicity, that this is how God has created you, and this culture bound up in that. It's not realistic to say, hey, pretend you're not Caucasian. Like just just ignore that part of you. Pretend you're not black. Just pretend you're like nothing. That's not really realistic. So I want to affirm that, like, this is who we are. We're embodied. We have our cultures, our heritage, and all of that. But at the same time, because I'm now in Christ, mm-hmm. I have brothers and sisters. And so it is a weird thing where I can be at the airport, I'm reading something, and someone next to me, we strike up a conversation, and that person might look totally different from me. I'm just meeting them here randomly. And we realize we're both Christians. And then suddenly it's like I'm talking to a brother, you know, someone who I don't know and wish we have this kinship in Christ. So I think that's a, a kind of a deeper kinship. And one of the, I guess one of the tragic things about sort of race and conflict and so on is that we sometimes get that. It, it turns out that it's sort of upside down. Yeah. And actually these affiliations or ethnicity and so on are stronger and deeper than the ship we have in Christ. And, you know, it's probably going to seem over, overly simplified in our conversation, but I just think that's sad. That's sad because um, this theological reality we're talking about, the Imago Dei, but then also how that moves into another register because of justification, because of union with Christ, because of the church, that should be a deeper theological reality that really impacts church life and yeah how we interact with others how we love each other how we love each other yes yes and i am so grateful for everything that you've shared with us today i mean i think when you're approaching a topic like creation and rebellion like this does not seem like it's going to be hitting the podcast charts you know when you when you bring up a topic like that but i hope that the listeners have come to understand that if we can really establish a foundation and get some categories in which we can think about creation and rebellion and then begin to think about redemption and consummation like you brought up, we're going to be able to, number one, treasure, value, relish in our salvation and the reality of what God's doing in us even now. And then beyond that, we also get to move into the lives of others and be able to clearly communicate what it is that God has done for us. So I really appreciate you just helping us to treasure God as we ought, and then also to get a better understanding of what he's done so that we might share him with people around us. Do you have any practical steps for listeners who just want to continue growing in their understanding of what we've talked about today? Read your Bible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, they're the basic things, right? Just uh, you know, discipleship and all, all of that. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's an older book that talks about the image in, it's an older book, so there are a lot of recent conversations that aren't there, but um, Anthony Hoikema has mm. a little book uh, created in God's image. If someone just wanted to, hey, I, I just want to get a sense from a church history perspective, just what the Bible teaches, et cetera, that's actually a, that's actually a decent book. And, cool. and then the Gospel Coalition has a series called uh, Concise Theology, yeah, I love those articles that they put out, right, online? That's right. And there are a number of them on creation and 
the image are actually are fairly helpful and they they're pretty readable you know they they're not too long so those are and they they're nice because they have a kind of bibliography like recommended reading at the end as well that might be a handy resource Absolutely. I have references in preparation for many of these conversations. Highly recommend them as well. Definitely one of my three simple joys. You know, it's just so interesting how the Lord (laughs) uh, just draws us to himself. I I don't know that 10 years ago I would have seen myself in my bed scrolling on my phone at night reading about creation and rebellion. But here we are. Definitely one of my three simple joys, the way that he's done that and sparked my interest in that. I hope he's doing that for the listeners even now. But I would love to hear What are three of your simple joys, specifically when it comes to knowing and loving God? Well, the first thing that came to mind is when you just said simple joy, uh, rainy day, it's evening, thunder outside, and I'm sitting on a couch and I've got a novel and I've got drinking some hot chocolate or something, and I'm just in a story that's really well told. That's a simple joy. It's something that I thank God. I, I grateful to the Lord for that they just people that write really good stories and allow me to just sort of escape into a, a story, a narrative, and get lost for a few hours. That's not quite what you were asking for, but that's one simple joy. And then on a more uh, quote unquote spiritual level, and so my kids are still young-ish, and it's also great. I don't know if great's the right word, but it, it's humbling. But I'm grateful to the Lord. Mm-hmm. He just uses my kids, I think. Like for me, for me right now, this stage of life, like, you know, my son is eight and Caleb and Zoe's like five. And honestly, you know, much of the drama of sanctification happens in my relationship with them. And it really is, it really is just that the Lord just teaches me how I just need to depend on him. And I'm not as great as I thought I was, you know, yes. all of these things that my kids, God uses my kids in these great, they, they don't know that. I am with you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Do you have one more or is that it for today? Yeah. I mean, I guess just because I'm a college professor, I, I should probably say too, you know, just in being in the classroom with like 18, 19 yeah. year olds and they get a bad rap sometimes just culture in general, but I have to tell you that being just having lunch and the conversation, the dialogue, the questions, I often just learn as much from them as they, they do from me. I'm really grateful to the Lord that mm-hmm. my calling right now is to kind of do this day in, day out. Yeah, that is so cool. I I really enjoy being with young people. And that was actually the period in my life where the Lord really just awakened my desire to know and love him, which brings it full circle. And I'd love to hear who it is that's had the greatest impact on the way that you personally know and love God. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a theologian. So with this question, people are probably going to sort of start citing like John Calvin and Bavink and Augustine, all, all of these guys have, have played a role. But I, I don't think in my case, I don't know if there's any one person that comes to mind. I will say, though, when I was a med student, when I was in medical school, that was a, just a very, very formative time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I was just reading all kinds of people, you know, David Pallison, D.A. Carson, Piper. Like, Piper, for instance, I listened to 
hundreds and hundreds of hours of sermons. I remember doing that. And, and some of that was actually instrumental in my decision to, yeah. you know what, I don't think I want to practice medicine huh. moving forward. But yeah, so I, I, I think there was just a cumulative, just a lot of faithful uh, men and women that ended up being very significant for me. That's such an encouragement. It really is. Because I think oftentimes we feel so much pressure to be, you know, communicating things and Im- being an impact in people's lives in just such a way. And yet the Lord uses us in little ways here and there and uses the whole body to be a, a testimony and a witness to his son, Jesus. So thank you for doing that for us today, even at a distance. It has been an absolute joy to get to have you on the Journey Women podcast. I really appreciate your time, especially on a Friday evening. <laughs> uh, it's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. We pray that as you listened to this conversation, you grew in your knowledge and your love for God and that it made you eager to pick up your Bible just to know and love Him more as you read. If you want to access scripture references, quotes, or resources from my conversation with Dr. Madueme, you can find all of that over in the show notes on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. There you can also find more episodes in this series, Knowing and Loving God. If you like this episode, we would love it if you'd take a few seconds to leave a rating and review on iTunes. We read every single one of them, like this one from Cassie that says, My favorite thing is that every single episode leaves me with a desire to know and study the Word of God more. Cassie, we are so excited to hear that and grateful for the time that you took to share your feedback with us. Doing so really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful as they navigate whatever seasons and challenges they might be facing on their journeys to glorify God. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week. Oh,